So this is a second, this is the second of a series of talks on transforming the judgmental mind. Does anyone have the judgmental mind present in your experience <laughs> recently? In a moment I'll define it, but I'm um, working on a book now on the theme of transforming the judgmental mind, and I wanted to both uh, share some of the themes and have these Wednesday mornings be part of my own creative process. So actually, uh, today, I'm going to give a talk on an aspect of the judgmental mind that I've never given a talk on here before. That I, it's a section. I'm going to talk after giving an overview of the nature of the judgmental mind, what I mean by the judgmental mind, how to work with it. I'm going to talk uh, especially about the uh, neuroscience behind the judgmental mind and how that can connect with our sense of practice and give us some uh, inspiration for our practice. So maybe first uh, a quotation just to uh, help get us in the mood. This is from uh, Mark Twain writing about judgments. Not exactly in the same way that I mean, but it's, it's a good way to begin anyway. This is what he says. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> so the first part, giving a brief review of what I covered last time. And as uh, most of you know, uh, the morning talks are available on the, at the website dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-Seed-S-E-E-D.org. And the one from last week is there. I gave, I gave a longer overview on this whole theme. Um, so first, let me give uh, a definition, because that's really important. And I'll review some of the territory last week, hopefully briefly, and then spend most of the time uh, talking about some of the understanding of how the mind and brain work that can help us in our practice. So by judgmental mind, I'm referring to uh, reactive ways that we have some kind of negative assessment or evaluation that often is quite harsh or mean-spirited, often quite automatic. Um, there's a way in which there typically is some kind of noticing of something, some kind of observation or discernment that's linked with a reaction, often very quick, very automatic, very negative. And so last time I asked for examples, and these were some of the examples that we looked at last time. And you can, I'll invite you just to think in your own experience, what are some examples of the judgmental mind? And maybe before giving those examples, I'm, I'm saying the judgmental mind is characterized by this combination of some noticing and reactivity. There are, uh, it's confusing because often in English, we use the word judgment to mean something that's a neutral, non-reactive observation, noticing, or discernment. So we might say the uh, the judges at the Olympic competition judged that that dive was worth a 9.5. You know, we would use, might use judge in that way, or, or uh, the teacher 
judge the uh, student's essay to be quite good. And there might not be any reactivity. It could be more a kind of noticing or discernment or uh, the uh, art critics made the judgment that the film was of low quality. And there might not be any reactivity. Now, in each of those examples, there could be reactivity. And one of the interesting things we looked at last time was that in itself, any statement could, you know, a, that's a kind of noticing or observation, could be, uh, could be judgmental or could be not judgmental. So we don't exactly know from the statement itself. I, I noticed a few years ago, um, you know, a lot of statements uh, uh, about the weather would tend towards the more neutral kind, right? You know, uh, you know, how, how's the weather? Uh, I, I judged that it was cloudy and there's not reactivity. I noticed uh, a few years ago, I was on retreat here for a month. This was back in another era, it's like three or four years ago when we had a lot of rain. And we, there was just, there were like 12 straight days of rain at the retreat and um, didn't have a sense of being a drought. And I remember uh, around the 10th or 11th time, I found myself starting to get judgmental towards the weather which was clearly going to be a losing proposition. <laughs> but I was saying, why can't you get it together and stop raining? You know, which, you know, was absurd, right? But when we studied judgments, we noticed that absurdity and weirdness comes to the territory, right? So it's, um, so it's interesting, though, because when we were doing, giving the examples, here's some of the examples we, we came up with last time. Uh, this could be in relation to driving. What is that idiot doing? <laughs> so there might be some, uh, listen for these and, and think how there could be a noticing linked with reactivity, right? So there might be noticing something about the driver. That's quite problematic, right? But there's reactivity as well. And what I, what I uh, find is that it's the truth value connected with the judgmental mind that hooks us. We kind of think, oh, I've got truth. I can be reactive, not a problem, right? It's some, I'm not saying we think that, but internally there's something like the logic, right? It's like, I have, you know, I see the way this politician is. You know, I notice something very important, therefore, bam, right? And it's almost like uh, we have, when we uh, track into some truth, it, we internally it's almost like it gives us license unless we've looked at this issue. Um, so what is that idiot doing? Or the second one that someone came was, I'm such an idiot. You know, th these were not said with loving kindness. Uh, another one, if he only ate better, he wouldn't be fat. Now that's an example of a comment which could be said very judgmentally, right? But it might be said more neutrally. Interesting, right? So you see, it's not the actual words, but then, then and we know this very well, it's facial gesture, tone, uh, maybe timing, uh, body language, all these things play a role in the judgmental mind. So it gets quite subtle, but we are extremely good for picking up the cues, right? We know the difference between, uh, you know, just a slight change of tone of voice and we get it, right? So very interesting. We're, you know, we're very, very tuned in to the subtleties of the judgmental mind. How can you possibly vote for that person? <laughs> and so I think last time we saw there's actually a double judgment there 
both about the person and about, about the uh, person one's voting for and then about the person <coughs> contemplating the voting, right? So uh, two judgments for the price of one. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. Okay. Again, often that could be judgmental, but that also might be said in a friendly way that, you know, in a, in a given context might be non-judgmental, right? You know, oh, oh, uh, Bill, you're you're doing it wrong. You know, could be done with, uh, and we probably, you know, as a you know as a teacher, if I was saying something like that, I probably wouldn't wouldn't use the word wrong because that tends to be a trigger, right? So you see, when we're getting into the judgmental mind, we're we're also getting into the subtleties of language, and the importance when we're going to work with this interpersonally, we're going to have to be very skilled with language. Right, and really look at it carefully. I'm not going to go into that today, but in the series we will. We will go into that. It's one of the areas I'm especially interested in. Um, here is a judgmental statement. There are other people on the road. <laughs> Said while well, driving. Driving is uh, um, primary source. Uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, after four weeks of retreat, I took on a practice of, of having my driving be guided by the spirit of generosity. I noticed uh, a few days ago that, that I had forgotten about that practice <laughs> after a few weeks, but I've gone back to it. <laughs> it's a very good practice. I have some students doing it, and it's, it's very revealing, right? It's very interesting. Uh, and then maybe a few more. Uh, I'm late again. Self-judgment, you know, or... Uh, I have a headache just from talking with her, and so forth. Uh, driving in cars came up about 20 or 30 percent of the time in our comments. Another one was people should not drive SUVs. So you get you get the flavor. And the important thing is is that we want to see that dual aspect of there being both uh, some kind of noticing and some kind of reactivity. Ultimately we can see, or maybe I should back up, we know that that combination can be related to a lot of suffering. And that's really why we're looking at this, because it's a very major uh, way that suffering occurs. We know that individually, self-judgment can be uh, very, very painful. You know, and in fact, a lot of my initial work with this uh, came from really studying my own self-judgment, quite harsh. And we know that self-judgment can be uh, very harsh, very mean, can be rooted uh, very far back in our personal history. And when I work with people, you know, it, we, most of us have some kind of self-judgment that goes back to age three, four, five, eight, ten. Right? If you look, you'll find that. A lot of, you now the, the there's this combination where judgments cause a tremendous amount of suffering, and a lot of them are automatic and unconscious. It's a kind of a deadly combination, isn't it? Uh, and so that's why I'm going to get into the neuroscience, because it helps reveal some of the roots of the unconsciousness and how we can work with it. Uh, so that combination of being automatic and unconscious on the one hand, and often leading to a lot of suffering. Self-judgment can, you know, uh, typically if you look to something like depression, you'll find some deeply uh, repetitive and 
often half-conscious, unconscious form of self-judgment, which may go back uh, a long time in history. Um, I'll bring this out some further. There are um, uh, all sorts of forms of social conditioning which convey a kind of judgment. Generally around the dominant groups of our society uh, bring a message to those less dominant groups, whatever they are, that you're not okay. These are v very strong messages. We see that this is the basis for racism, for sexism, for all the different kinds of judgments that are out there in the society related to 10 or 20 different categories, right? Some of them more intense than others, but related to religion, uh, related to educational level, related to class, related to sexual orientation, uh, all sorts of things. We, we, know, we know that. Um, and the conditioning is very strong. This is from uh, Margaret uh, Cho. Some of you know, how many of you know Margaret Cho, a comedian? If you were a woman, if you were a person of color, if you were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, if you were a person of size, if you were a person of intelligence, if you were a person of integrity, then you were considered a minority in this world. <laughs> and it's going to be really hard to find messages of self-love and support anywhere, especially women's and gay men's culture. It's all about how you have to look a certain way or else you're worthless. You know when you look in the mirror and you think, oh, I'm so fat, I'm so old, I'm so ugly, don't you know that's not your authentic self? But that is billions on billions of dollars of advertising magazines, movies, billboards, all geared to make you feel shitty about yourself so that you will take your hard-earned money and spend it at the mall on some turnaround cream that doesn't turn around shit. <laughs> Pardon my language. Uh, when you don't have self-esteem, you will hesitate before you do anything in your life. You will hesitate to go for the job you really want to go for. You will hesitate to ask for a raise. You will hesitate to call yourself an American. You will hesitate to report a rape. You will hesitate to defend yourself when you are discriminated against because of your race, your sexuality, your size, your gender. You will hesitate to vote. You will hesitate to dream. For us to have self-esteem is truly an act of revolution, and our revolution is long overdue. <laughs> That's a strong statement, right? So, uh, but it points to the way that uh, you know, judgment and self-judgment also has this social dimension. Often we don't see it. Often we focus more on the interpersonal dimension, which can be very intense. So the suffering can be there socially. It's linked with all the forms of oppression in our culture, um, the judgmental mind. It's linked with um, uh, difficulties in interpersonal relationships. It's related to, as I mentioned, certain uh, difficulties related to depression, all sorts of psychological issues. So it's a big issue. It's, it's also a very fundamental issue spiritually. You know, that, that I find it to be people who have not worked out this issue, uh, which it means most of us, or virtually all of us, uh, this comes up in spiritual practice. And I find that the presence of the judgmental mind is a kind of barrier to going deeper in spirituality. Understandably, right? Because it preoccupies us. So it's a very, it's a very, crucial, uh, very crucial topic. Um, and we uh, want to see how to work with it. So last time I said that it's the, this dual nature of judgments as both uh, having some, we might say, cognitive quality, some noticing, some seeing, some discernment linked with reactivity, which gives the clue to transformation. 
what we need to do is separate out the discernment from the reactivity so that we can use the discernment for the purposes of compassionate action. Easier said than done, right? That's a, that's a big task, but, but conceptually you can see what needs to be done because we don't want to throw out, around, away the discernment. The noticing is important. I'm at a party, I notice someone is acting a certain way that in my judgmental mind I call rude or obnoxious. Um, well, let's suppose I had that same noticing but I was coming from compassion. I might intervene and be helpful. Right? So the noticing is important, so we want to watch out there are a lot of people in the, in the sort of psycho-spiritual scene who say judgmental mind bad or judgment's bad, get rid of them. That's going to get rid of the discernment. And actually, as we saw last time, it, it often is keeping the loop of judgments going because it's judging the judgments or judging the judger, right? So that's, so the, what the, sort of the approach I'm giving is something you won't find everywhere. You'll actually, if you listen for it, you'll find a lot of people think we just get rid of judgments. That's what we should do. I think that's problematic. What we want to do is transform the reactivity and keep the discernments as much as possible. And there are a lot of subtleties to that point, but that's the basic approach. So the two basic ways that this transformation occurs is first, and I'm not going to give much detail here, I'll give more detail in future weeks. <clears throat> the first main way is that we study the judgments we notice them, we track them, and this, is, this was especially what I invited last week, to notice the uh, judgmental mind when it's present. Give a label for it. Notice judgment. Go to a meeting. I mentioned keeping a piece of paper. Let it be your judgment log. Oh, there's a judgment. Oh, judgment. Oh, judgment. Watch out if you're new to this for judgments about how many judgments there are. Because when you really start looking at this, you'll find, oh my God, there are so many judgments occurring. I am a veritable judgment machine <laughs> leashed on the world. <laughs> um, and so we want to we wanna track them. We want to study the judgments. Look at them. Notice them when they're there. When they last for a while, feel what they're like in the body. Feel what the narrative is. What's the storyline? What's the emotion? What occurs? The reason for doing this is that if we study it really, really thoroughly, if we become really experts in our own judgment, that permits us to notice them more quickly when they arise and bring our resources to bear, not have them proliferate and take hold. That's, and so the mind, that's what mindfulness helps us to do. If you really notice it, you'll, you'll and, and sometimes you notice the body, oh, here's what my body does with judgments. I kind of get contracted. And you might, sometimes you'll be at a meeting and you'll notice, oh, I'm a little contracted. And you'll notice that first before you notice the thoughts, interestingly. And so we really want to study it so we can notice it, see what it's like, study the patterns. What tends to trigger your judgmental mind? What kinds of things? What ten different things trigger your judgmental mind? So we want to notice that. And the, that's the first way of inquiry. And then, you know, when I work with people in retreats and in more sustained work, we also have ways of getting beneath the surface. A lot of our most regular judgments are driven by unconscious and automatic um, material that's uh, beneath the surface, and we need to have ways to access that. I'll talk a little bit more about that in, when I go into the neuroscience basis. And that's a very important way of working with judgments. The second way is necessary because uh, we 
often when we go into judgments, it, there can be, it can be the territory of pain. It can be a territory that's difficult for us. A lot of our judgments are driven by unprocessed pain or by unconscious pain. And by pain, I mean anything unpleasant, you know, from the minor uh, unpleasantness, maybe of, you know, the irritation of a driver acting in a certain way. There's some, there's some irritation there. That's, I'm, I'm broadly calling that an example of pain, meaning the presence of the unpleasant, to something deeper like grief or some deep uh, sadness, which leads one or some, you know, something, some deep uh, grief about, I don't know, uh, the tendency of the country related to this politician, right? There could be something there, but the judgment sort of covers it over. And, and I actually understand judgments as defense mechanisms. They cover over a certain amount of pain, which means that when we start going into them, we part, to a significant extent, we go into the territory of pain. Imagine the pain of having received oppressive messages from the society. You go into that territory, it's not going to be altogether pleasant. You know, you're going into hard area. And so the whole second approach especially gives us the resources to be able to do that. So loving kindness, compassion, ability to go to joy or beauty, basically developing awakened qualities, very crucial part of this transformative process. We need the awakened qualities to give us the resources to go into the hard territory and to go deeply as well as to start shifting our sense of identity away from that connected with the judgmental mind and towards awakening, towards realizing that we are brilliant creatures of love and wisdom. All of us. <laughs> Yay. That's who we are. But don't we get caught in small visions of ourselves and small visions of others. It's not just, it's not just me who is a brilliant creature of love and wisdom. It's the people who cut you off on the highway are as well. But. <laughs> okay, so um, let's see. So how to understand then uh, this from a different perspective? This is the second part. Given that background, I want to talk uh, for some time about the value of understanding how the judgmental white mind works from the point of view of neuroscience, because it can give some further understanding that I think can give energy for really doing these practices. Again, the two practices, and these are the two practices I'm going to invite us to do at, as we continue with this work. The first is really being mindful of judgments, seeing them, exploring them when they're there for a while and then having some heart practice, like loving kindness or compassion, that you do regularly. I talked about the first kind of practice as a more direct way to work with judgments. The second is more indirect. They're both crucial. What can happen, you know, again, the, the indirect way slowly shifts our center of gravity so that we come to see ourselves as awakened beings. And that can change things just as much as going into the hard stuff. You know, um, okay. So um, neuroscience is really interesting. The understanding, contemporary understanding of the brain is very interesting for understanding the judgmental mind. And it really relates to this really uh, interesting question which you brought up last time, 
which is that isn't the judgmental mind just an example of the normal way that we evaluate, categorize, make sense of things? You know, isn't it? Just, you know, how do we make sense of that? And I think the neuroscience can give some further understanding. And actually, in my response, I, I went into it a little bit last time at the, in, in the discussion time. So first, I want to say just a few words about the um, the value and risks of connecting science and spiritual practice. It's happening a lot in our culture. We're in a culture which, in which, um, to a large extent, uh, what we sometimes call empirical science or natural science or sometimes just science is the uh, main and often the only, uh, seen as the only legitimate form of knowledge. You know? And um, that's very strong in our society. I think from a philosophical point of view, I think that is uh, problematic. But that's very dominant in our, in our culture. And obviously, science has had tremendous value in all sorts of ways. Um, uh, so there's this tendency at times to see science as the ultimate authority in terms of knowledge. This can be in some tension with what we find in spiritual traditions, where there's a kind of an inner science, which is also a way of gaining a kind of deep knowledge and has its own rigor and so forth. And so we want to be careful that the mainstream science of our culture isn't simply made the authority on everything. That being said, uh, what, we're, we're, what is more the spirit is one of dialogue. And I think that's happening a lot. What's, can there be a dialogue between spiritual traditions and natural science, in which each, each is going to learn? My prediction is that maybe in 30 or 50 years, assuming we've dealt with a few issues like climate change, um, 30 or 50 years, we'll have a part of the whole body of science will be something like an inner science, which will have a very different nature. That would come out of a fruitful dialogue, I think. And so I want to just, uh, that's a little bit of a word of caution about this isn't my use of neuroscience is not simply bowing down and say, yes, science, you, you're the arbiter of everything. I think that's problematic. Can science offer tremendous uh, uh, information and value and perspectives? Yes. Um, does that make some sense? Yes. Yeah, it's an important perspective because there's a danger of uh, meditation bowing at the altar of science and uh, having it be a one-way uh, relationship, not a dialogue, really. Okay. Um, now, here. that being said, that's a kind of a, a qualification. That being said, the rest of the time, I'll just bring in some of the really wonderful findings of neuroscience. Um, essentially, the brain really likes to categorize. Right? The brain really likes to categorize. It's totally normal. The brain likes to categorize and use concepts and fit things into uh, little, uh, what, uh, little uh, bundles. Or fit, fit things into little patterns. And so essentially the brain uh, doesn't like consciousness. It likes everything to be unconscious and automatic as much as possible. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a strong tendency in the brain uh, to do that. And so there's a very, uh, uh, the brain likes to have routines. We like to, you know, kind of have general routines for everything we do. 
So you might think of some routines that you have. What are some of them? Maybe there's a certain way you brush your teeth, right? You know, I was thinking of an example of mine. I, I live in Berkeley. I go to BART. I have a little routine I do. You know, I, maybe the night before I get the, my BART ticket, I put it in my pocket. There's a whole little routine. It's not like what the brain doesn't like is to face every situation freshly and have to figure out everything all at once because it's too much. There's so, mu there's so much going on with the brain. We're taking in all sorts of cues, right? All sorts of information. The brain really likes efficiency. And so it likes these, it likes these routines. Uh, when we can't some fit something into a routine, there's often anxiety. You know? We often have, have some, uh, some difficult. We don't do so well with, the, with what is unfamiliar. Um, so, tremendous amount of what we do gets encoded in routines. So, our posture, how we eat, you know, uh, you know, and a lot of it's culturally mediated. You know, do I use the fork with my left hand or right hand? This is all deeply wired into our brains, right? We have these patterns that we, that we use. Uh, one neuroscience uh, uh, researcher says consciousness is a small part of what the brain does. Um, the less conscious the mind is in terms of an activity, the less energy is required. Consciousness requires a lot of energy. The brain likes things to be automatic. There's a, there's a tendency. And for the most part, this is pretty helpful, right? For the most part, this is helpful. All, uh, you know, all, probably all of what you're doing now, how you're sitting, you know, how you find comfort in your body, all sorts of things are happening now fairly automatically. And that is very helpful. And can anyone think of other, basically, routines that are generally helpful that you do? Just hmm? back to the driving yeah. example. Sometimes you can go to A and B and not even... Yeah. Right. There can be relative unconsciousness with driving, which sometimes is a little shocking, but uh, we, we all do that, right? Or there, there's, there's an automatic way that you hold the uh, steering wheel, maybe. You don't say, oh, it's Wednesday, April 27th. How should I hold the steering wheel today? <laughs> you know, or uh, what route should I take, right? You know, that's another thing. That's a routine. We have routines for how we get from home to Spirit Rock if we come a lot, right? And we have routines for maybe even for how you eat. You know, anyone, other, other examples of routines that are for the most part helpful? Um, meal yeah, meal preparation. We might have certain ways we do it. We don't have to think it out. Other examples? Favorite mug with coffee. Yeah, you know, here's, here's the mug I use. Here's what I do. Uh, here's, here's my breakfast routine. I have a whole routine. I don't have to think about it. It's automatic. It more or less works. I like it. I feel comfortable. Yeah. Meditation routine. Yeah, it can be a meditation routine. Very, very good. You know, here's what I do uh, when I start meditation. I do this, maybe. Uh, and some, again, some of it can be quite helpful. Uh, some of it, because uh, you know, we're talking, so we're talking about habits and routines. And some, and that now, uh, maybe one or two more examples. Yoga yeah. or some sort of practice. Yeah. So there may be a way I do yoga. Or I might just have a general routine. Here's what I do in the morning, right? Here's what I do in the morning to center myself. And these can be quite helpful, right? Uh, routines or habits are generally, you know, a large amount of them are helpful. Of course, a lot of them can be uh, unhelpful, right? 
a lot of our routines can be very unhelpful. And they're still routines, okay? What are, what are some unhelpful routines that come to mind? Yeah. Well, I always unplug the iron after I use it, and I move the iron someplace else, but then I go out of the house and I can't remember whether I unplug <laughs> the, the iron because right. it's so routine. So there's a certain there's certain routines that you have. You might find this, or you have, maybe have a, a routine for here, unplugging the iron. Anyone have a routine for locking the front door and you don't remember whether you really <laughs> yeah. did it? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that. We could have routines that are connected with our emotions. I may have a routine when I'm emotionally upset, I eat, right? That's a routine. Here we're getting more into the behavioral thing. That may not be so helpful. Or I drink, right? Or I try to meet some need by a behavior which in the long run is destructive. Other examples of that? Yeah. Being late. Being late. I might have, uh, I might have deep patterns, and a deep uh, routine where I'm late. Uh, and it might actually meet a certain kind of need. Were you thinking of a need that it actually meets to be late? Yeah, because I, I, I had a, yeah. Wanting to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, wanting to do a lot of stuff. A lot of people routinely are late because they try to pack in too much. Right? It's very common, right? I had a, I had a partner who, um, who's a, a good friend now, <laughs> and um, um, she was often late for dinner. And when we really went into it with some depth, it appeared that uh, she had this old routine from, um, uh, from probably age 10 that being late gave her a sense of freedom, an inner freedom, and that being on time felt constrained. It was connected with family upbringing and so forth. So you can have, so these can be habits. Yeah. Other, um, maybe one more example. Yeah. Um, just the whole body presentation, inner and everything, when we when we meet with someone we know yeah. and have been with relations with many yeah. times. So it's I remember, I feel it's so different how I would be with my sister. They feel totally different with different people. You have certain routines of how you are, how you talk, how you are with different people. That that, that that's helpful. And that actually is kind of a segue. So what happens with, uh, one of the things that happens with the judgmental mind, I'll talk about the judgmental mind on two levels. One, the first is more psychological, and the second is more social. And talk about how the neuroscience helps here. We also have routines which are connected with chronic judgments. And you could think of chronic judgments, could be self-judgment or judgment of others, as very much like the more helpful routines that we talked about earlier, if they're regular. And we all have a lot of regular uh, people we judge, some ourselves or others, uh, or situations or whatever. And these are a, the, the logic of these is the same. These are basically ways to simplify experience so that we have basically have meaning. So let's say, here's one example of a kind of uh, judgment that would form at an early age. Let's suppose I'm four years old, I'm a little bit rambunctious, my parents don't like anger. I get angry, my parents say, don't be angry. Good boys or good girls are not angry, right? I get that message really strongly. Probably that was a message that some of us got. Right? Um, and I have the choice at age four 
of either asserting my wildness and rambunctious quality and risking survival, <laughs> right? Or I can suppress my anger. Virtually all children choose the second option, right? Then they have uh, a mental model that they form in their minds. They internalize the message of their parents. Anger is bad, something like that. Anger is bad, and that is a model that they have. It's like a routine, uh, or we could call it a mental model that the brain has, which starts to go beneath consciousness and starts issuing out um, the judgmental mind. Let's say the child's now eight, and child actually gets angry at something, and uh, often the parents not even necessary. The child will judge himself or herself because the message has been internalized. The mental model anger anger is bad is there, and the judgment occurs of that person. And of course, it's going to occur for the people at school, the people who play with. Someone gets angry, say, "You shouldn't be angry. Anger is bad." Right? <coughs> the judgment comes out. There's no thought about it. It comes from the internalized uh, model, which is wired into the brain at a level that's not conscious. Right? And of course, that occurs, you know, and then the person gets to be 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, and is on a path of inquiry and says, hmm, maybe I've got something about anger. Hmm. Maybe, you know, starts going to therapy or starts meditating and then, then finds some ways to go and access that wiring, as it were, and be able to change the routine. Now, important to say, I'll give some other examples, but it's important to say that the reason, uh, the reason that there can be a fruitful dialogue between neuroscience and meditation is because of one of the key findings of neuroscience, which is called the finding about uh, neuroplasticity. Many of you know this term. It refers to the fact that uh, the way that our brains work is not fate. Even if, uh, essentially, that new neural pathways can develop at any age. And this, again, goes against the previous understanding of the brain until recently, which the thought was that the brain, after adolescence or so, is sort of fixed, right? But the recent research shows that there's this plasticity means that it can change, that uh, old patterns can be dropped and new patterns can be taken on, right? So um, uh, another way of saying this is that, uh, I think this was from uh, the psychologist uh, researcher, Donald Hebb, he said, was it neurons that fire together, wire together. <laughs> you know that phrase, which means that uh, when we keep on repeating a certain routine or pattern, we're strengthening that neural pathway. And so if I've repeated that uh, routine about anger, you know, 100,000 times or 200,000 times, it's pretty wired. But what we can do, and this is where the, the meditative practice has come in, we can actually um, create new neural pathways. And mindfulness is a key way to do that. When we become aware of the old neural pathway, it actually start, it starts to create a new neural pathway. And I can create a new neural pathway on the basis of mindfulness and then uh, <clears throat> creating new ways to deal with a given situation, like anger. You know, like anger, I could, um, again, this is going to take some time because we may have 
had the neural pathways around anger is bad have fired, you know, whatever, a very long, large number of times. But we can actually start to be aware, be mindful of anger. We can start to say, consciously say, anger is just a normal part of experience, right? I could take on that view, and that could start directing a whole different neural pathway. As that gets stronger, and I stop feeding, as it were, or uh, repeating, the old neural pathway, the old neural pathway gets weaker. That's how things change, right? So neuroplasticity is actually connected with freedom. And that's why there's hope. It's incredible hope. I have worked with people, I think of one person I worked with, who I, I've mentioned his example, every morning he woke up with strong self-judgments and said, I will mess up today. Originated when he was seven or eight or nine or 10, you know, I worked with him for uh, quite a while, and it became clear, that, you know, where this came from. It came from <coughs> basically older brother and father. You know, repeating this to him, he internalized it. He gave that message to himself for 50 years. And he worked with him maybe age 60. It got changed. 50 years of repeating the same debilitating message, which had resulted in, you know, in depression and you know, being on medication and so forth, was able to be changed. Uh, even though it had repeated so, because um, the practices we work with, the mindfulness and the heart practices are quite strong. They really can transform, even something that's been around for a very long time, right? And so uh, with that, you know, so that could give a sense that person who has the issue of anger could really, uh, you know, this is gonna take some time. Person is gonna have to, you know, slowly discover, oh, there's an issue around anger. Because it's, you can see how that's a kind of routine that's unconscious, right? That is unconscious conditioning that the person's not even aware what's generating the judgments. It's all happening. And a large number of our judgments before we do this work are like that. They're happening automatically. We don't even know why. We don't know where they're coming from. They were set up a long time ago, either in the context of family or personal history or the social conditioning. Um, but once we start bringing them to mind, mindfulness is a key tool, they can be changed. And so this is actually uh, also very help helpful. Let me give this one other example, then I'll open things up. I wanted to bring in the example of how this works with some, with some of the social conditioning. Um, essentially, our minds work in very similar ways with uh, what we what psychologists call outgroups and in-groups. We're all a member of groups where we feel, oh, this is my group. Some of them are personal choice. I'm in the group of stamp collectors, right? Or I'm in the group of what? Uh, people who like this kind of music. Some of them may be more matters of choice. They're not socially oppressive, generally. Um, and then some of the groups we're in are ones we're in because of the way this society is structured, where you know there's an in-group and an out-group, and if I'm a so-called white person, I'm in the in-group, and people who are non-white are in an out-group, and there are a lot of groups like that where there where there's uh, essentially what's different in that kind of in-group and out-group from the ones related to stamp collecting or music is that the second kind of in-group and out-group is connected with institutional and systemic power. 
which has tremendous amount of implications, right? We know that, you know, we know that, that, you know, it has essentially, if you're in the in-group in society along any number of means, there are all sorts of systemic forces which open doors for you, which help you. And if you're in the out-group, there are all sorts of ways that the doors close, you're not helped, whether it's whatever, financial, voting, you know, m many of you know the story of this, right? Along any, you know, parameters of race and gender and age and so forth, right? There, uh, sexual orientation. There are all sorts of ways that uh, being in that in-group or out-group, when it's related to power, takes on a lot of social significance. And that's where, you know, now the other thing about that is that what psychologists have found and brain scientists is that the, uh, we develop routines based on being in in-groups or out-groups. We're generally more comfortable with in-groups. I'm more comfortable with people who I think are in the same group as me. I will tend to feel comfortable. I know the rules. I know the routines. Essentially, from the point of view of neuroscience, the brain doesn't have to work very hard. Same, same logic as earlier. Right? The brain doesn't have to work so hard. When I'm in an in-group and I confront someone in another, in an, a group that to me is an out-group, it's more confusing to me, it's more unfamiliar, I don't know the rules for behaving. Uh, I may not even, you know, when we look to something like uh, racial constructions, it's very common that I actually, um, the person becomes the symbol for the group rather than an individual, right? And so I actually don't see the person. I see the person as a symbol. So as a white person, I have conditioning to see a non-white person more as a symbol for that group rather than an individual. Whereas in my in-group, I tend, and this is, the, this is from normal brain functioning. This is not pernicious racism by itself, right? This is the way the brain functions. So it's a lot, so we have a lot to work with, right? This is the way the brain works. And so we know that very common phenomenon where people in one group will uh, not be able to distinguish individuals very well in the out group. You know, I've seen this in work situations where, there, where we had uh, several African Americans and it was not uncommon sometimes for the white people to mix them up. You know that phenomenon, right? You probably read about that, to mix them up to be, and again, this is not simply, you know, this is very painful but it's the normal functioning of the brain. That's what's interesting, right? We call this, the psychologists call this implicit bias. We have an implicit bias for those in the in-group, and we have difficulty with those in the out-group. Again, not an issue until it's connected with power, with institutional systemic power. And so, um, does that make some sense? That there's a sense of quote-unquote normality, I know the rules, and with people in the, in the outgroup, I don't. Now again, when it gets connected with power, of course, the people in the outgroup internalize, as in the Margaret Choke uh, quotation, they internalize the judgment from the society. You know, there are not a lot of mainstream harmful messages about stamp collectors. Right? Not that I know of. <laughs> right? um, and um, and all of this happens at a very young age. You know, we learn the rules, like for gender, at a very young age. We learn what is okay, what is not okay, what a boy does, what a girl does. 
according to conventional messages. And they're culturally arbitrary, right? So, um, do you remember the uh, incident that happened, I think, in Oakland, where a young man saw a Berkeley teenager who was gender non-conforming and was wearing a dress on public transportation and lit the dress on fire? Do you remember that? On the bus. Yeah, that person was encountering something which just was going against what that person had internalized at the level of the brain in terms of what is normal and okay. Right now, now the good news is that all of that wiring can be transformed. But it's a little bit sobering to think that this, all of those large social forms of oppression are both wired internally and structured uh, through institutions. So it's a lot, right? But it can be changed. The wiring can be changed through different sorts of procedures. You know, we could, I could go through that at the social level as well. Um, but that person had a routine in the brain which said, uh, basically, this is not the way things are. This is not normal, right? And in that incident, you know, just said, I'm going to show my strong judgment against that. So, um, but if I was to unpack this further, we would see that we can actually, it's normal wiring, which can give a certain degree of, um, take us a little bit away from blame or shame, right? And it really is more something that the, you know, when this gets, it's, it's the power is really the crucial issue, when it gets linked to the power. Otherwise, it can be, you know, the in-group and out-group can be more harmless. Of course, mo all societies have in-groups and out-groups linked with power. So, um, but the, uh, maybe I'll just finish by saying that the ultimate message is hopeful. Even though, that, I don't know, that may have felt like a lot to take in, you know, how that, the normal functioning of the brain is connected with different <coughs> forms of oppression, right? It is, but it can be changed. And so, um, we can change that implicit bias. Mindfulness plays a key role. We can start to notice, uh, you know, there's, so there's sort of the, the twofold way to approach the social issues. One is the inner transformation, and the second is more working on the systemic issues. Again, both are large, but when we start doing the inner work, and one can do that, one can, and I think a lot of us probably have done that. A lot, of, a lot has happened, you know, in some areas, you know, very quickly. You know, think of sexual orientation. The wiring of a large number of people has been changed very rapidly in the last, what, 10, 20, 30 years? Isn't that remarkable? It's pretty remarkable. But the wiring was there at the level of the brain initially, right? You know, both at the level of people's uh, negative judgments and also internalized uh, self-judgment, self-hatred, right? Very strong. So the ultimate message is hopeful, that we, through, through mindfulness, inquiry, looking, a great deal of empathy and compassion, and for the social issues, there's a lot more I could say. I'm not being complete here. You know, it would take, you know, learning history, being involved with social transformation, all sorts of things. Uh, but ultimately, the message is, is uh, positive, that we can really uh, work with these two, you know, these... Uh, two broad inner ways of practicing to develop awakened qualities and capacities that help us to work with this and then to actually inquire, go deeply into the judgmental mind.
And then when we talk about more outward practices, there are a whole range. We want to, you know, very helpful interpersonally develop good communication skills, working with conflict, and then be a skillful agent of social transformation. Uh, a lot to be said. So let me let me just finish. I've talked a little bit longer than I wanted, but um, this is the spirit. Uh, I want to finish with a poem by uh, Pablo Neruda to uh, really point to that. Uh, this is long-term work, right? Okay. So not, not complete by the end of the morning. Okay. But this is the sense of that quality of patience and sort of long enduring mind from Pablo Neruda. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Thank you. So a little bit of time if there are questions or reflections. Um, Thank you for the poem. That was very beautiful. So what comes to mind for me is the question about um, what I think of as the positive side of discernment in terms of it being very kind of self-protective. If a situation feels intuitively dangerous or you think, oh, I'm not going to pursue friendship with this person. So um, how how is one to balance out maintaining the positive aspects of discernment and teasing that apart from the negative parts of judgment. judgment. Great. Well, that's, that's our work. It's a wonderful question. Um, the de- positive uh, or the discernment is always valuable. Um, and a lot of this is um, about recognizing that there are different kinds of situations and we always simply want to do our best. Um, in the long run, we want to try to be able to uh, separate out the discernment from being judgmental um, and bring that to situations that may be difficult, um, where initially we couldn't do that. So initially, I may be in a situation where um, and let's say I'm in, I'm met someone new, and the person, you know, has good qualities, which maybe draw me to be a friend. But there's also a person, let's say, is very judgmental towards me, and is doing so in a way which feels uncomfortable. And and I start noticing myself saying that person is really judgmental, right? Which is uh, connected with uh, interest in my own well-being, safety, and so forth. And uh, so initially we can, you know, we, we, could, we could do inner work with that kind of situation and, and uh, say, oh, what, what's this telling me, you know? Uh, and, and we might actually, so, so, so we, it would be important just to 
actually notice that there's discernment there, uh, so it's we just don't get caught up in the judgment. There are kind of two possible ways we could get lost in that. One would be to get really just to get totally lost in the judgment, so I actually forget the discernment and say, oh, that person's so obnoxious or something. And then I actually uh, um, keep going back with that person because I, <laughs> I don't, I, I haven't used the discernment in a compassionate way. I don't actually, I get so caught up in the judgment that I don't use the discernment cleanly, so to speak. That could be a problem. And then, um, uh, well, maybe that's enough. I was going to say there was another sort of issue so uh, sometimes we would just notice the judgment and that would, that would uh, give me enough information not to stay connected with that person very much longer. That would be enough. In the long run, as we get better at this, we may actually be able just to have a more of a calm discernment. Oh, look at that person. You know, I'm sorry that person's that way. I don't, I don't think that fits with me. And that, that would be a little bit more mature. Uh, but it's going to depend on the kind of the degree to which we get triggered. And some things, you know, are going to be very triggering and the judgments are going to be there. And they're in generally they're generally protective in some way. And we just get out of the situation. And that's, that's okay. Yeah, but a good question. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe we need to take one or two more. I'm on, on the left, on my left here. This is sort of a question and it's sort of a statement. Yeah. I feel judgmental about myself because I'm not sure I really understood everything you said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you started out talking about judgment, so I put that in my judgment compartment yeah. up here. And then we were talking about all the behavior patterns and yeah. the way we can change our neuroplasticity. And yeah. So the connection is that we shouldn't judge ourselves for our judgments because we are so conditioned to have them. And why? Um, that's thank that's you. what I got out of it, and thank I don't you. really understand. Yeah, yeah basically we just do the practice. Uh, uh, first of all, so, so a few ways to help with that. One thing is we would just notice, oh, this is a uh, gathering a morning on judgments and I'm noticing myself being self-judgmental. So we would just study it. And uh, we could also give ourselves a little bit of compassion. We could bring in the heart practices and say, you know, um, you know, you could say to yourself, well, there was a lot of material. It was coming uh, quickly. It was uh, a lot there. And, um, you know, I can go back and listen to it later. You know, maybe the voice of compassion could come in or or, you know, I could say something like that, that could maybe ease it some. You know, it was a lot, a lot to take in and so forth. So essentially, you would just do the practice that, that we outlined, which is to notice it, uh, fe you know, to feel, and, and, and uh, you know, over time you could, you could see and you could remember that there might have been a certain pattern. Notice if a similar pattern occurs elsewhere, maybe that I'm you know, I'm not sure I really understood it well here. Maybe that something like that arises in other situations, and you could notice that and see if, the, you know, see if we just keep basically keep exploring. You know, and then you could also um, you could also give me feedback if it was you know too much material so that I don't give talks on judgment which set up 
half the group being judgmental themselves. You know? <laughs> and I could also listen to it again. You could listen to it again, yeah. yeah. But, but, but that would be part, if we were in, uh, you know, we're in relationships, so the feedback also could be helpful. You know, I really liked it, but maybe, maybe you could have stretched it over two talks. You know, that would be useful feedback. Right? And so, uh, that, you know, so I like to think that ideally, especially if there is a relationship, the response to the judgmental mind is both uh, doing inner practices and then outer response, mm -hmm. both. Right? Uh, and in certain situations, we primarily do the inner practice. You know, and if we're, you know, it, it can be sometimes helpful to do the inner practice, like if I'm before you go back with the outer. But um, ideally, ideally both. Okay, maybe. Uh, Maybe just two more, and we're, we're a little bit over time, so I hope that's okay. You okay for three or four more minutes? And if anyone does need to go, feel free to go. I'll, I'll just take two more. Yeah. As I was driving here, I was judging myself because I couldn't remember what the homework was from last week. Yeah. You had asked us to do so. Yeah. Um, I didn't actually remember, but I came up with this observation. I yeah. hope you can address either in the future in your book. And that is that I think the judgments that are more subtle yeah. are often more destructive and yeah. harmful yeah. than the judgments that are more explicit and negative. Right. right. And uh, I think I can deal with the more explicit negative kinds of judgments. Yeah. They're easier to deal with. Yeah. But the subtle ones, um, and I'm just going to give one quick example, like in a relationship say between a husband and wife, yeah. or partners, the one partner says to the other, I wish you were more loving, I wish you were more affectionate, yeah. Yeah. I wish you were more demonstrative yeah. uh, towards me. And that could be seen as a, just a, a statement yeah. that's a wish, a desire, but implicit in that is, um, I wish you would change to meet my needs, right. and you're not good enough for me. Yeah. So it's a form of judgment that's couched in a very, more of a neutral, kind of subtle way right. without coming right out. And I think that can be very, very harmful, right? because the person hearing it, at some point, if it's done over and over, it feels like, well, I'm not good enough right. for that person. I need to change. And the person who's saying it, is also um, thinking that this other person can meet my needs. Right. If they would only change, then I would be happy. Right. So there's that whole dynamic that's going on in that relationship, but it's not based on this negative, oh, you're bad, you're yeah. terrible, or whatever. It's couched in a very, it could be a very sensitive, gentle way, but behind all of that, there's this real strong, um, force that's working there. That's right. There, and so I, I'm yeah. hoping that at some point you can address yeah. that, or yeah, I think that's even more powerful than yeah. than the explicit uh, explicit negative kinds of comments. Yeah, yeah. I think um, there's there's a lot there in, in, in what you said, and, and I think uh, most close relationships have certain kinds of uh, mutually reinforcing negative judgments of the other which stay blind. <laughs> Something like that. I, I've certainly seen that. Um, and um, 
Yeah, and they're all we have all sorts of ways of speaking that try to make it look prettier. You know, all the mechanisms of what's called passive aggression and oh, I was just kidding. You know that one? <laughs> can't you take the, can't you take a joke? Right? And um, yeah, I think the subtle uh, basically by subtle we can also mean hidden. Or most the roots are hidden, or mostly hidden, and that relates to what I, you know, the main thrust of what I was talking about today, which is that the uh, the routines connected with the judgmental mind that are repeated and the most repeated tend to operate beneath consciousness, and and they can surface like this, and there can be a way that they, um, you know, uh, you know. And there can be there can be these deep um, core beliefs. Like the core belief could be, um, "You will meet my needs," or "My partner will meet my needs," or for the other partner may if that other partner has any roots of a of a of a internalized unconscious belief that I am not okay, I am not enough, which is extremely common in our society. Uh, that person will get triggered and will go into the uh, unconscious neural pathways of that self-judgment, right? which are subtle, they're beneath consciousness. And so typically when that happens, people manifest in unconscious automatic behavior. You know, so it could be yelling, withdrawing, just some, some form which actually can't deal with the situation because it's not conscious. right? And People, you know, it's like two unconscious, two, two unconsciousnesses are <laughs> grappling with each other, and the result is not pretty. And that's, uh, you know, that also occurs at the social level. You know. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, last one. Um, I find that when I am judgmental, and I think about it, it's usually because there's something in me that I don't like that I'm seeing in the other person. Yeah. And also, um, when I do that, I try to think about how I can view the situation a little differently so I wouldn't be judgmental. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that, that's you're doing inquiry, which is very valuable. You know, and so there are a lot of ways that we can inquire. When you look at, I think, taking one's own judgments of others as a point of inquiry is a beautiful way to practice. Asking the question, um, you know, is this, to what extent is this actually about me? You know, the psychologist Carl Jung said that that which we don't face in ourselves, we project outward onto others and we encounter it as demonic. Okay, sorry, that's, that's, there's a lot there. <laughs> it also explains foreign policy to it. Or, uh, um, but, but that's a good one. So these kinds of inquiries, asking those kind of questions can be incredibly valuable. You know, is there something about me? that I'm, that I'm uh, working with here. Uh, I'll just finish with something that I worked with as a practice for a number of years. When I found myself having a reaction with someone and starting to judge that person, I would have an inquiry, why is there a reaction in me? Is there something I can learn from this person? So I made, it, I made the uh, noticing of a judgment a starting point for inquiry rather than a starting point for war. And that goes a long way. Like, what is there? And you, can, you can inquire meditatively. You can inquire with reflection. So, okay. So we'll continue with this inquiry. 
uh, when I come back in three weeks for several more weeks. Maybe I'll just unpack some of that, maybe because I, I did, there was a lot there. Um, and I can unpack it and go a little more slowly. And for the time being, continue with the mindfulness of judgments, just noticing them, exploring them when they last for a while, exploring the patterns. What, and this can be done after, you know, six hours after you experience it. What triggered it? What was the trigger? What happened? And then uh, if you have a, a practice of loving kindness or compassion or joy or some heart practice or just be with beauty, continue that. And these, these are the kind of long-term resources that help us do this work. And so just reflect for a moment on what you might take from this morning, any intention coming out of the morning. practice, uh, not just for ourselves, but very much for others. I think the themes we've explored bring out that point as well. So may our morning, may our session be a benefit to all beings, and all beings includes us. Thanks a lot. To be continued, and uh, take notes. <laughs>